0: Tonight we're going to pick up on Galatians chapter 3 where we left off. Uh, We're starting now at verse 10 and should get through verse 26 here tonight. Um, Just basically kind of picking up on the theme of what we had talked about before in the sense that the law is not what's saving you, but the law is still in effect. It just doesn't bring salvation. It is not our motivator. It is not... Um, uh, an evil or bad negative thing it's still a good thing matter of fact it used to be kind of a bad thing because it used to bring condemnation and now it has become a good thing in that that's why Timothy says that that's why Paul says that the law is good okay it is holy it is righteous And yet somehow we have found a way to call it, oh, that's done away with. That's no longer important, or that's a bad thing. The very opposite of what Scripture calls it. And so we're going to kind of, he's going to unpack that even more here tonight. Um, Just kind of going off of what I said there in worship, that we've got a lot of Gnostic I think, philosophies that have come back, probably never have left, but I've been reading a book here, and we're going to kind of touch on some of this tonight, from a guy who's basically talking about the seed of Satan. And you know when, in Genesis 3, it said that there was a, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. We're going to talk about that seed of the woman here tonight. These books have been focusing on the seed of Satan, and while there may be some truth to what he's saying, in the sense that Satan knew that the seed of the woman was going to be his downfall, and so he went after that seed, and has been going after that seed forever. He did not want the Messiah to be born. He did not want Yeshua to come. He didn't know who it was going to be, and so... He has tried to destroy that line. He knew the promises that God gave Abraham. And so he has tried and tried and tried to keep that from happening. Well, he knows who it is now. You know, I would often, in evangelism, tell people that you know they say, well, I believe in God. And it's like, I don't care if you believe in God. I wanna know whether you follow him. The devil believes in God. James says the devil believes in God and he even shudders. So, believing in God does not get one to heaven. Although we've kind of made that a mantra of Christianity. You know, just believe, just believe. That's all you got to do is just believe. No, that you, you, if that's all you do, you're no better than the devil. You see, we have to follow up with that belief. That means if you believe something, you act on it. And that all is going to connect here. But anyway, that seed of Satan that uh, I think that sometimes we in the church, I said this uh, maybe a month or two ago in relation to the Jews and, and what they have made, how they've changed the gospel. They've changed it so that since there isn't a sacrifice to be made, so you can't have that, how can you be saved? ironically, it's not even the law from their perspective anymore. I mean, it's law-like. I mean, you need to, you know, give money to the poor, basically be a good person. But it isn't really upholding the Ten Commandments. It isn't about make sure that you don't eat kosher meat, make sure that you don't, you know, turn your light on on the Sabbath or all those other rules that they say. That isn't even what brings them salvation, which is just remarkable to me. But I think that, Christianity today has that idea that that's what the law is. I'm going to show you tonight, that has never been the means of salvation for a Jew. It isn't today, and it wasn't in the Old Testament either. That is a huge misconception in Christianity. The law never saved, ever. Even after the Ten Commandments were given, it did not save. Did it bring curses? Yep. Did it bring blessings? Yep. But did it save? Never. Not once. And they knew that. Scripture even says it in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that. David understood that it was the righteousness of God that brought salvation, not his own works. So How did we get this idea? Well, ultimately it's an anti-Semitic attitude, but I think more so it was the devil, the devil trying to get at that seed, the devil trying to destroy God's people. He hates you, he hates us, and he wants you to not uh, know who Jesus is. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where you're going to understand who God is. So with that said, I, I mentioned, as I said, a couple of weeks ago or a month or two or whenever it was, that the Jews today have set up a system by studying is what is how you can really find God, you study. But you study for the sake of studying. What do you study? Well, the Torah, they'll say, but it's not, it's not the Bible. Typically, it's the oral Torah that they're talking about. They'll know more about the man-made rules and the things that are not written down in God's Word than anything else. And I think that the church has become almost like that today, that maybe it's a little different, but ultimately it's the same result. That we think that by studying or by reading our Bible, that we're going to find salvation. I'm a Christian. I read my Bible every day. Who cares? I hope you do do that as a Christian, but that is not getting you into heaven. Reading your Bible every day is a good thing, but it is not salvation. And I think that we have this Gnostic attitude that we want this deep hidden inner knowledge of how Satan's kingdom works and and we hear all this stuff about transhumanism today and that satan is still trying to corrupt the seed and that the antichrist and this false prophet these are going to be what satan has tried to do from the beginning you know through nimrod through marduk through all these other greek gods all of them are the same name for the name of the devil and he's always been trying to open up some portal hole from the tower of babel all the way up to today to i've even heard you know that the, the uh, the boson, uh, Higgs boson thing, uh, the, the pa- particle collider, yeah. You know, that, that is trying to open up a, a portal of the devil. Because I don't see any of that stuff in Scripture. Now, could it be true that the devil is going to do... Maybe, I don't know. But somehow there's a deeper Gnostic aspect of that to where we're trying to figure out what Satan's doing and it was really just dawning on me, I don't care what Satan's doing, or how he's trying to do it. I don't wanna study how he's doing stuff. I wanna study what God has done, and that is all I need to know. It is that simple. And so, oddly enough, I think tonight's message will just kinda bring it back to that. It all comes down to one simple message and let's find out what that is. Galatians 3.10 says, for as many as are of the works of the law are, are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, I personally have had many people show me this verse in regards to my view of the law. The law is bad, look, If you're under the law, you're trying to keep the law, you're under a curse. It's basically what they tell us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. Well, the key here is in all things. It's basically saying what Jesus said. He who breaks the least of these commandments breaks them all. You break one, you break them all. You see, the works of the law, if that is what you are trying to be saved by, you are under still a curse. It will not bring salvation. You see, the law itself is not the curse. It's trying to be saved by the law that's the curse. Because you have to keep every bit of it. That's what this is saying here. Now, I want to show you that even in the Old Testament, they understood that. This is not a new concept brought up by Paul in Galatians. That Oh, look, in the Old Testament law was different. Now, now it's, oh, you're under a curse. No, even back then they grasped this. Look at this here. Uh, before we get too far, I'm going to jump ahead into Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, which would be the law in its negative sense but the law has a positive sense as well indeed i paul say to you that if you become circumcised christ will profit you nothing and i testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law so again the context of this is used to say see law is bad you're now free in christ so stop trying to keep the law Well, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're coming under a curse if you seek to be justified by the law, to be saved by it, because you have to keep every bit of it without stumbling just once. And there isn't a human being ever born that was capable of doing that outside of Jesus Christ, who was full man and full God. If... This was saying what Christianity is telling us today. Why did Paul have Timothy get circumcised? He says, if you get circumcised, not only does it not profit you anything, but you now have become a debtor to the whole law. So why would Timothy do that? Well, we've already talked about the fact that he was doing it as an evangelistic purpose. He wasn't doing it to save Timothy, because to do so would mean then Timothy had to keep everything perfectly, and then he would be cursed. That's all that's going on here. Back to chapter 3 here in verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law. That's what it goes on to say, giving us the context of verse 10 that we love to isolate by itself. In the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Oh, I'm so glad we have the New Testament to explain this to us now that, that the just, those who are going to be justified by God, The only way you can do it is to live by faith. You know what's amazing? Is that this new revelation here found in the New Testament is coming out of Torah. It's coming out of the Old Testament. Something that they had a full grasp on. Way back here in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So clearly, Paul is not giving us some new revelation to how you're saved. They understood it in the Old Testament. I'm gonna show you from the Jewish writings themselves and the Babylonian Talmud, the writings here of the Jews what they say in regards to the law. And I can't remember if we've touched on this in some ways before, but this rabbi Simlai, when preaching, said 613 precepts were communicated to Moses, 365 negative ones that were basically for the days of the year, 248 uh, positive ones for the number of the man's body, like the, the bones or whatever in the body, they said. So what he's saying is of the 613 laws in scripture that are in the the Bible 365 are good and what what he means by that are things like um, uh, you shall love the Lord your God then the negative ones are things like you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain you shall not murder things like that So. That being the case, you have 613 things that you have to keep flawlessly, or else you're going to hell. If this is the case of the truth of Christianity. Well, even they knew it was impossible. And so it's kind of interesting because it goes on and it says David came along and he took those 613 and he reduced them just to 11 principles. So Moses had 613. David comes along and he reduces all of them to just 11 in Psalm 15. And here's Psalm 15 just kind of broken down how they have it there in the Talmud. He that walketh uprightly, there's one, and works righteousness. Two, speaketh truth in his heart. Three, has no slander upon his tongue. And it goes on. There are 11 things here that you must do to keep the whole of the law. Now, remember, Paul just said if you get circumcised, you're going to have to keep it all. Well, now it's a little easier because we have 11 to keep, according to the Talmud here. Well, Isaiah comes along after David, and we see that he's going to take those 11 and he's going to reduce it down to six. It's getting easier. And in Isaiah, he says this here, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hand from holding of bribes, stops his ear from hearing of blood, shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he shall dwell on high. That's chapter 33, verses 15 and 16. Well, thank goodness for Micah because he's going to bring it and he's going to help us even make it easier. Rather than six, he's going to bring it all the way down to three for us. And again, this is what the Talmud said: Micah came and reduced them to three, as it is written, "It has been told thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doeth require of, or what the Lord does require of thee." Number one, only do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before thy God. Micah 6.8 And the Talmud goes on because apparently three is too many. And we see that Isaiah came back and even reduced it more down to just two. And he says here in Isaiah, Keep ye justice and do righteousness. That's it. But even that would be too much. So, In comes Amos, according to the Talmud. Amos comes down and brings it just to a single command. As it is said, for thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, seek ye me and live. Guess what? Amos got it right. Seek you him, Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, and you've got it. Now, What amazes me, guys, is I'm not reading from a New Testament. I'm not giving you something that James Dobson said or any other Christian leader. I am telling you what it says in the Jewish Talmud. These people who we think have to, you know, keep 613 commandments and then some to be saved. Even they teach that's not the case. The Talmud goes on and it says, To this Rabbi Nahum B. Isaac demurred, saying, Might it not be taken as, Seek me by observing the whole Torah and live. Kind of sounds almost like what we just read in Galatians. But it is Habakkuk who came and based them all on one principle, as it is said, But the righteous shall live by faith. That is exactly what Paul just said here in Galatians. The righteous are not going to live by the 613 commandments. That's what he's saying. Instead, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we as a Christian church understand that quite well, it seems. But yet, how come we feel like the Jews don't get it when they taught it even before you understood it? Something seems a little weird yet. And it is amazing that it seems like they can be so close and yet be so far away. Now, a big hang-up is just simply this. They miss their Messiah. See, they're still living by faith. They know that they will break the commands of God. They know that. They just don't know that Yeshua is their Savior. They're waiting for the Messiah. Do you know what they're waiting for their Messiah to come and do? Teach them the law the law will go out from Mount Zion. Oh, isn't that interesting? That's kind of what I believe too. Because that's what Scripture says over and over and over. Yeah. I just listened to that earlier do a question and answer thing. And he said, you've got to realize that Jews aren't looking for something to save them. They don't understand what we're talking about. They're, they're Jews. Yeah. They, love the God. Yep. They, they don't know what you're talking about. And I just thought it was almost yeah. like <laughs> For us to go to and ask a Jew, are you saved they would look at you strangely like, from what? Am I in trouble? Is there somebody about to shoot me? What? What's going on? They have no concept of that type of salvation. Yes, we're God's people. By faith, I know I, I'm saved. Not because I am walking around with my headgear and all of this kind of stuff, but because I'm a Jew. I belong to God. I belong to God. That's it. Yeah. So... I think you need to understand, I mean, first of all, for evangelism, that's a very important thing for you to understand, but also for our understanding of Christianity and the way we we view one another. I remember years ago uh, when we were doing our Bible study back at the teacherage when I was there 18, 19 years ago. And we had multi-denominations coming to this Bible study, and it was just neat to see eyes opening up because... As a Lutheran, we were taught that this denomination believed this and that they were thought that they had to be, you know, to do good works to be saved. And then these other denominations were looking at the Lutherans and thought, "Oh, but we've heard that you have to do this to be saved or you think that you're being saved if you do this or that." And they would talk back and forth and look at each other and, "Well, that's not what we believe." And the others would say the same thing. But it's like all we know is what we were taught by our own denomination. And as a result, we never could be united on anything. And it, it was just, it's crazy, but that's the same thing. We have this idea that you know exactly what all those Jews are believing and whatnot, and they're on their way to hell. Well, they are without Jesus, but not they're not on their way to hell because of what you think so. It, they're not works righteous. Yet that is the common understanding today. Let's go back to Galatians 3. Verse 12 says, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by faith. Or live by them, I mean. So the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. What's that mean? Well, let's go and let Scripture tell us what that means, because this can be a little tricky, because it's interesting how it's used. Again, just like he's doing all through the New Testament, he's quoting the Old Testament. So if you think that the New Testament is right and the Old Testament is wrong, you gotta throw them both out because there's nothing new in the, old, or in the New Testament. It's revealing what was in the old already. Leviticus 18.4 says, "'You shall observe my judgments, "'keep my ordinances to walk in them. "'I am the Lord your God. "'You shall therefore keep my statutes And my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, yeah. It's great. He's saying, if you keep my commandments, okay, if a man does that, he'll live by them. And ultimately, you're going to be blessed. Is it talking about salvation? No. Is it talking about blessings and good things? Yes. But then you go to Nehemiah 9.29, and we see the exact same phrase, but it's used in a negative sense. He says, And he testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. So here it's it's like if you're not doing those things, you're under a curse. So how do you make sense of this? Well, in, in essence, it's just saying, in modern day heathen terms, karma. You reap what you sow. You keep the commandments, you live by them. You don't keep the commandments, you're going to live by that. It's kind of interesting. I see just talking with my wife about kids that she sees in subbing and whatnot sometimes. And it's like, we're just families where that chain has just never been broken. And you see, I, or even like when I was in junior high, I could have told you which kids in my class were going to be in jail someday. Because the man who lives by them It's going to be judged by them okay what they reaped or what they sowed is what they reaped and yet you see these others that read their bible they're doing bible studies they go to church they love the lord they're praying to the lord and you see there's a bright future for them you live by them because you do them and there are blessings in it so In essence, that's all it's saying is you reap what you sow. Ezekiel also uses this in both the positive and the negative, all in the same chapter. He says, therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments. So the commands, the laws, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Was he... Trying to say, don't do these things, they're bad, it's a curse, it's going to hurt you. No, it's good. Then in verse 13, okay, just one verse later, yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. Yet they, they despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. So here it's in the positive and in the negative in the same verse, so we have to decide what is it in Galatians? Is it being used as a good thing or is it being used as a bad thing? Let's go back there and look. I've got it kind of in smaller text there for your uh, context, but when it gets to verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So you see there in verse 10, He just got done saying that those who are under the law are under a curse. So it's a negative context. But then it continues on the next slide here that you're going to see with the good news. And that is this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see... The law is there. You will not be able to keep it all. If you are going to be judged by that law, will you be found innocent or guilty? As guilty as sin. Because you cannot keep it all. Even if you don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't swear, you know, don't go over the speed limit. I guarantee you there is something that you do even if it's in the depths of your heart, and I really liked hearing about Aaron's testimony, because that is kind of Eden was even sharing that she kind of wondered what kind of testimony she'd be able to give too, and she said it really spoke to me because that's my testimony. I, I didn't grow up. I've loved Jesus as long as I can remember. As long as I can remember, I remember praying at night in bed, my prayers to him, talking to him, loving him, knowing that he has forgiven my sins, having a good moral compass, not wanting to do bad things. And when I did do bad things, man, I felt guilty. But it's so interesting to me how we have a tendency, because I wasn't out there getting drunk Although I had it before, I don't. I'm not putting myself up on this big of a pedestal. But for the most part, I was. Looking, I, I'm not a partier. I'm. I. I don't cuss and swear like all these other friends of mine do. I don't do drugs like these other people that I know. I don't do all of. The, but my goodness, I was absolutely no better than them. No better. You know, I know some of you here have talked to me about. Having a hard time realizing that God could love you because of you know some things in your past. You're no different. I had a a wonderful ministry opportunity here this week when I was on the trip. I had an appointment to meet with a guy who is a high school kid struggling with homosexuality, and I couldn't. It was just it was so hard to get it through his head. He said, "I I just wish." That I could be like you. That, you were, that I was straight. And I said, what's the difference? You, you're struggling with maybe looking at this guy, or looking at somebody lustfully, but you don't want, you know it's wrong. You know, I've, I've struggled looking at women before. I, I, I do it all the time, as a matter of fact. I, I have struggles where I can have a lustful thought about a woman that's not my wife. Sorry, dear. Yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. Women? This is Gilmore. I was going to say we've missed the bus. Sin is sin, regardless of what you are coveting after or looking at. And what I kept trying to tell him is that, listen, you society has made it look like, oh, if you look at a guy lustfully when you're a guy, that that is, oh, the sin of all sins. But if a guy looks at a girl with lust, that well, that's just natural and that's okay. Yeah, you're right. It's natural because we were born with a sinful nature, a sinful flesh. But that's the only thing natural about it. They're both sin and they are both an abomination in God's sight. And I said, don't let society tell you who you are that you are a saint. You are his child. You're not gay. Just because you, you, you aren't attracted to a woman, I said, you're blessed. I wish I was like you. He's like, what? That's what Paul said. I don't remember if this is the right address, but 1 Corinthians 7, 32 maybe or something, where it says, I wish that, he says, I wish that you could all be as I am but each of us has our own gift from God. Is it Timothy? I don't know. Somebody can find it for me, but it says, I wish that you were all as I am, but each of us has our own gift from God. One man, okay, it says not one man, but uh, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is, 1 Corinthians 7. Is it verse 32? So Yeah, one out of many. But the point being is it's a gift. He says, I wish that you could all be gifted and not lust after women. And yet society has taken that gift and they've said, Ha! You're gay. No, 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 no. You're a child of God. Don't let the world attach that to you, that identity. And I said, don't don't even use that terminology, gay, homosexual, straight, not straight. Don't use those, because then you're just attaching that identity to you. you. You can't do that, anyway. My point being is this, is that we have a tendency to put ourselves up on a pedestal because of these big sins. It isn't the big ones. I don't care that I was a good moral child. I was on my way to hell without Jesus. All of us are because of what's in our hearts, let alone what's even in our actions, And that's what's amazing is where is the law put now? In our hearts and in our minds. You see, the law being put in our hearts and our minds, in a sense, cleanses that heart. I lean not, the Bible says, lean not on your own understanding. The heart is deceitful and wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? And yet the world is out there. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and follow your heart. No, don't follow your heart. You follow the law of God that's placed in your heart. Yeah. Do you think that idea of God's law being written on our hearts is connected to God's promise to give us hearts of flesh and not of stone? I do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. So again here in verse 13 christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law don't just make that the big things of those 613 commandments he has redeemed us not only from them but from what's in your heart what's that that sinful nature that sinful flesh as well and the only way then is for him to become a curse for us Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, the gospel didn't come through the Ten Commandments. Keep these and be saved. The gospel was given long before the Ten Commandments to Abraham. When that gospel was given to Abraham, did it go away when the Ten Commandments came? Not at all. And I think they even understood that. But Christianity today has made it as if somehow that gospel did go away. Or wasn't there to begin with. Exactly. Good. Yeah. Say that one more time louder. I don't think they'd. Yeah. The, um, I'm just gonna find it. Uh, Hebrews 4. So yeah, in Hebrews there, they had the same thing we've got, they just didn't receive the benefits of it because they didn't receive it by faith. The message has always been faith, as we've just been seeing throughout the scripture. So. Jesus became a curse for us. Curses anyone who's hung on a tree. He became a curse for us, did what where we belong, basically. And by the way, uh, that's drawing here what he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, coming from Deuteronomy 21. But we should have been the one hanging on the tree. But he took it for us. So, verse 14 there is just telling us why Jesus did it to allow Gentiles to receive the promise, to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Basically not to change the Jewish truth, but to add Gentiles to the Jewish truth. See that? That the blessing of Abraham, the truth that has always been there, might come to you who didn't always have it. That is why he became a curse for us. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, just as the Jews did by faith. And yet the Jews still were keeping the law, and it was a good thing to keep the law. Verse 15: Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, once you confirm a covenant, once you sign a contract, that's it. You don't change it. You don't annul it. It is, you know, it, it, it's solid. That's what he's saying. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as one, into your seed who is Christ. We also read there in Genesis 22, verse 18 in your seed singular all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice here we have that faith and works connected again because of obeying god's voice this is another thing i want you to understand we have this idea that somehow when the ten commandments came that is the first time that they understood the law that had ever been given They knew the law long before the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments simply wrote it down. And there is all kinds of records that would attest to this, let alone scriptural understandings of things like clean and unclean and so on, long before the book of Leviticus was there. The Sabbath, it was written down, but from creation there was a Sabbath. Sabbath. So, um, this seed aspect, clearly we know it's, it's telling us here, it is Christ. And that is identifying, as I said before, when there would be enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed, It's it goes from the woman to Abraham. It's the same seed that's being talked about. And so... Is Satan trying to corrupt that seed? Absolutely. I believe he is. But I don't think it's so important for us to know how or why he is trying to do it as much as it is to know the seed of Abraham. That's all that matters. Satan can have to do it on a pogo stick, if it, all I care. It, I, it makes no difference. I'm not going to make my life's goal to go stop the pogo stick production plant. Because Satan's going to use Pogo sticks somehow. That's not my job. I know that's a dumb example. And that's what the Spirit's been putting on my heart as I've been reading this book. It's like, why does any of this matter? How is Christ glorified by me knowing that you know the pyramids were used for this or that, or the Tower of Babel? and it, 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 it's not. Christ isn't glorified. I'm not edified by it. it it's a lot like uh, in cultish they talk about it, Dr. Walter talking about cults and how uh, a banker friend of him, was, his was going to learn about counterfeit bills. And he's like, oh, I bet you saw a lot of counterfeit bills. And no, we didn't see a single one. Well, how'd you learn about it? We studied the original. You know, you study the original that you know it so well, and that's what all this is boiling down to. We just need to focus on Christ. Yep. So the whole point from way back when, like the very beginning of time, It wasn't about Satan's seed, it was about the seed. The seed of the woman was going to crush your head. That's all you need to know. He's going to crush your head. And then it goes to Abraham, and it is the focus on the seed. And that is the focus of what it's supposed to be, because it is that seed that has ratified, written, and fulfilled the covenant. It is that seed as well that gave us the commandments but not to be saved. To be saved, he became a curse for us. Verse 17, And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot, and that's after Abraham's uh, covenant, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. In other words, the law can't change the gospel that had already been given to Abraham. It didn't nullify it either. Didn't change it, didn't nullify it. It was a blessing to try and keep them on track and and to be used as a tutor to lead them to see who the Messiah was. That's all it was, not for salvation. It goes on that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise and we're dealing with the same thing. So it is not by law, it's still by promise. Always was, always will be. So, this is also why I think it's in Romans 4 where it says, did Abraham receive the promise before he was circumcised or after? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And so he received the promise the gospel even apart from the law I think it's interesting I was reading in Joshua today and i would never noticed it before but um, the Israelites come into the promised land through Joshua and then they're circumcised that whole generation I've never taught that before that um, once they were in the promised land then Joshua took them and you know follow the law circumcised them after they had been you know saved through the promise yeah that's a good point too it's just like Mm -hmm. the same thing in exodus they didn't get the law till after they were saved Mm -hmm. in the promised land they didn't follow the law till after they were saved us that's when we should follow the law it's not those who are unsaved who are following the law Now, that's going to be interesting in a verse that we're going to be looking at here in a minute, but you'll understand it. You see, we follow the law after we're saved, not before or to get there. So, I love this this covenant, this promise that God made too. And I brought this up at communion here uh, three, four weeks ago. But just to bring it up again, just some parallels that I find interesting that when God made that covenant with Abraham, remember he took the animals, he cut them in half, he laid the halves on either side of a trench the blood would go in the trench and this is common we have found in archaeological records that this was done to make covenants contracts and so both parties would walk through the blood filled trench the idea was that if I break my covenant what we did to these animals in essence the shedding of the blood I'll do to you if you break that covenant so we see that God then, well, some birds came and tried to eat the, the carcasses. And Abraham chases them away. Now one of the things I find interesting about that is, first of all, birds scripturally are almost always a picture of the devil. Okay? So I think this is some spiritual thing going on. Satan's going after this. Satan doesn't want this promise to be had. Abraham steps in to try and get rid of that. God then puts Abraham to sleep. Because I think God was saying, you have no part in this. This is my covenant to you. Which is why then we see a flaming pot go through this, that God goes through the trench. Abraham never does. In a normal contract, in a worldly contract, both parties go through. In this case, only God goes through that trench. Because it was his covenant. I think 17 times I think it has said this is my covenant. My covenant. My covenant. My covenant. It's not. This isn't your promise to him. It's his promise to you. And what's interesting that I brought up at communion that's kind of cool is it may have taken place at that very place there in Jerusalem where this covenant was given. Because this is before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. And. It was at that time, Passover, that Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Passover is one of those required feasts. There would have been up to two million people probably in Jerusalem. And they're slaughtering hundreds of thousands of lambs. I can't imagine the blood. The Jewish records say that there would oftentimes be a stream of blood that would go down to the Kidron Valley. Now, those of you who went to Israel with us, you'll know the Eastern Gate, then there's the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Garden of Gethsemane on the other side of the Kidron Valley. The very place that when Jesus was arrested and he is being brought back into the city gate, he would have crossed the Kidron Valley. I don't know for sure if he did this or not, but perhaps he walked through a bloody stream Because it would have gone down into that spot. That the promise that he gave to Abraham in the cutting of the covenant, Yeshua was about to fulfill and he walks through that blood. And other interesting aspects are this. The disciples are put to sleep in a sense. They fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane there as well, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, The birds try to stop it. Judas, Satan enters him, tries to stop this from happening in a sense, too. You know, all those little parallels. Again, I don't know. It's just an interesting thought. But nonetheless, the covenant was ratified, and the cross is ultimately what that was pointing to. Goes on to verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? All right, so we see it doesn't save you. Well, it was added because of sin because of transgression until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, this is also one that's kind of used oftentimes to say, look, the law was useful, but only until the seed came, then it's done. That is not what this is saying as you're about to see. Um, It it doesn't mean the law is gone. If it does, then we've got problems with so many other parts of Scripture. You're going to see that the law was added because of transgression. The law was doing its work of convicting you of sin until the seed came. Until the seed comes into your life and my life. Once that seed comes into my life, that law is not there for transgression. Once the seed comes into my life, the blood of Jesus is there for transgression. Okay? Now, that might seem like I'm stretching this or just to make it fit my... But you'll see other verses that are going to show you. No, that's what this is saying. Okay? Okay? the law was added not for righteousness though. Note that too. It wasn't added so that you could be saved. The Jews knew that. It was added because of sin, not because of here, do this and now you're saved. It was added because of sin, to make sin utterly sinful it says in Romans. So Another thing interesting too, that the law, it was appointed by angels. We see angels were there in the law. I've been doing some really interesting uh, studying on the fact, kind of going along the lines that the law was there before the Ten Commandments, but that the angels also keep Torah. Which makes sense. Why wouldn't they? But the angels keep Torah, which would mean, interestingly enough, that they would also keep the festivals. And I, I might do a message on that sometime, but in some of these apocryphal books, it adds details about those type of things, which are kind of interesting. Um, but nonetheless, the angels were the ones that uh, were the mediator, in a or not mediator, that's the wrong word, but they uh, gave the law. Angels were there. Hebrews also attest to this very thing as well. And some of these apocryphal books will also agree with that. It's just, we don't often think of angels being involved in that sense. So I'm going to take you to the Talmud here again just to give you some understanding here. It says, The house of Elijah said, For 6,000 years shall the world exist. For 2,000 it will be desolate. 2,000 years will be the time of Torah. And 2,000 years will be the days of the Messiah. Pretty much right on. So, there's a time of chaos without the law. Then the law, and then the seed comes. It just came, it gets better and better. They realize that when the seed comes, that's not the age or the time of Torah. That's the time of Messiah. Well, it's the same for us. You see, now is not the time of the law. Now is the time of Yeshua. But he doesn't get rid of the law. But the purpose of that law has changed, but the law itself has not changed. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? Going back here, looking at this again. Um, This has to be, to interpret this, it has to be consistent with the totality of the rest of Scripture. Romans, as I've shown you before, Timothy and others, the law is good. Do we then nullify the law? No, we uphold the law. Uh, The law is is holy, righteous, and good. All these things. So what is this meaning if the law is not bad? Did he get rid of it? No, Jesus says not one jot, not one tittle will disappear until heaven and earth disappear. So that's not it. We know that when Jesus comes back, the law will go out from Mount Zion. So clearly he's not done with it. So what's going on? Well, remember the Jews are waiting for the, the Messiah. And that Messiah is supposed to teach them Torah, teach them the law of God, not get rid of it. This is why, as I said, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, fulfill, to be done with, would be abolish. So that's not how you interpret to fulfill. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, these aren't just words written on a page anymore. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. They're not just letters on a page. They came to life. They became living in Yeshua. Because now the righteousness of God... Well, the law was not added for righteousness, but it says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets saw this righteousness that was coming. They saw Yeshua, the, the Messiah, and that's what they were talking about, was that. So the law and the prophets are the two witnesses. You might say of the Messiah as well and of the seed that was to come. Once Christ came, there's no longer a need to point us to what has come. The law and the prophets are pointing us to Jesus. Now, once he's here, there's no need to point to somebody who's already been there. So it was never to save you. It was to point you to who was going to save you. So the law was revealing who the Messiah was going to be. Watch for him. He's going to keep the law. He's going to do these things. And he did. So now because he has come, he has taken that law that was to point us to Him, identify Him, and He has put it in our hearts so that now that He is identified, we get to know Him. Understand Him more. Not get saved by the law, but to know the One who saved you and fulfilled the law for you. Verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not, absolutely no. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture is confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Yeshua, Hamashiach, might be given to those who believe. So he's basically put in that anchor statement that we talked about before, just in case you guys might think that maybe the law is a bad thing. Certainly not. And somehow we've missed it still. Even with this anchor statement. We read this, there had been a law given which could have been given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. We think, yeah, that's what the Jews used to believe or that's what the Jews still believe. When in fact, never once have they believed that or do believe that. The only people who believe that, ironically, are people like, Muslims or many modern denominations today who have a works righteous uh, doctrine. So that anchor statement is there to make you not think that the law is bad. Um, going to go to verse 23 But before faith came we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Again, it was to point you. The law and the prophets testified about him. The law and the prophets were a tutor to lead you to Christ so that when you identify him, now you can follow him. But after faith, now that you know him, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You no, no longer need an arrow pointing to who he is for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not how we normally read this verse, though. Today people read this verse and they think, okay, now that I'm a Christian, now that I have faith, I'm no longer under the law to where I don't don't need it. Well, that's not what this is saying. Again, context of the rest of Scripture. Um, the, The law certainly no longer convicts me of sin. The love of Jesus does that. The Holy Spirit in me does that. So, let's just show you some anchor statements that Paul would use in other places to make sure you don't think that when it says you're no longer under a tutor, that means that you no longer have the law in your life. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. That is the exact same thing it's saying here when it says that we no longer have a tutor. You're no longer under a tutor. The law is a tutor. Therefore, you could say you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Same exact thing. So here's that anchor statement. Shall we sin then because we are not under law, but under grace? Should we? What is sin? lawlessness, right? John defines that sin is lawlessness. So, I'm not twisting things by saying, "Shall we then be lawless?" Certainly not. Just because you're under grace doesn't mean the law is not there. Romans 8:1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in faith, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Notice there's the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Well, it's the same thing. The exact same Ten Commandments in the Torah. It's just that now a different understanding of it. It's a law in our hearts that brings freedom for me rather than a law on paper that brings condemnation, conviction, um, uh, rules of, oh, I, I hope I'm doing good enough to get into heaven or whatever the case might be. That's the law of sin and death. But the law of Christ is still the same thing, just in a different perspective and a different result. Not condemnation, but freedom. I'm not under the condemnation of that law. I am under the freedom of Christ Jesus. Period. Perfect example. When I was in the Lutheran church, every week we said the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. I remember thinking, God, I hope he does better than that. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. So if I'm kind of a little bitter towards you right now, that's how God's going to forgive me? And I would say week after week, I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. I'm a poor miserable guy. Oh, don't get me wrong, I had sin and whatnot, but I stood as a saint forgiven. A sheep that acted like a goat rather than being a goat. And there was a difference, if that makes sense. I now realize that I am free. I'm a saint. In my men's group, we're reading the book The Practice of Godliness. And the last chapter we just did was on self-control. And it ends like this. James describes the Word of God as the perfect law that gives freedom. As we grow in the grace of self-control, we will experience the liberation of those who under the guidance and grace of the Holy Spirit are freed from the the shackles of self-indulgence and are brought into the freedom of true spiritual discipline. Yep. Yeah. And and those can be words or that can be reality. And... For one person, they will just be words. For another person, it can be reality. And I, I can't tell you how to make that reality outside of follow the Lord and let the Holy Spirit do it in your life. He will. 1 Timothy 1.9, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. This is one that is used a lot. Was that you, Devin, that texted me about this one? Or was that... No. no. No, I know who it was. Somebody else had texted me just like two weeks ago about this very verse. What do we do with this? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. See, the law is not... I like the way the RSV translates it and in the Greek it, it is very much this. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. It is... It, can be very different. It can be the same, it just depends on how you look at it, but that's that's the truth of it. God did not lay down the law to condemn me as a righteous person. I am no longer under the condemnation of the law because of what Yeshua has done. If that isn't freeing, I don't know what is. The other point you can make there is no one's righteous. Yes. Yeah. Who's the, well, yes and no. We are all sinners, but at the same time, I can stand like Job and say, I'm blameless. I'm righteous because of what he has done. And that's kind of that whole thing. Like, if I look at, well, I'm not righteous because, well, I broke the Sabbath today and I did this and I did that. If that's how we measure righteousness, we're in trouble. Our righteousness is measured by what He has already done for us. Last slide, Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Notice that the law itself wasn't the problem. It was the flesh that's the problem that makes the law weak, not the law itself. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's how I can say I'm righteous. Because of Yeshua, all of the requirements of the law have been fully met in me. I'm a saint. I am righteous. And because of that, I'm going to go try and keep that law the best I can. Because I'm not under it. There's no condemnation. And man, I'll tell you what, somebody who did that for me, he's worth you know, worshipping and getting to know better. I want to get to know Him the best I can. I want to, I want to do what pleases Him. I want to find favor in His eyes. I want to, I want to have Him reveal Himself to me. The John 14, 21 again that those who love Me and who obey Me, it is He who loves Me, and the Father loves Him, and I will manifest Myself to Him. I want God to manifest Himself to me, because He's done so much. It says, who do not walk according to the flesh, because in the flesh the law is weak, but according to the Spirit, because in the Spirit the law is strong. That's the difference. My daughter keeps saying, are you almost done with this law stuff? No. It's like, this is what Galatians is talking about. I, we have grown up in the church for so many years who has given us an inappropriate, wrong idea and definition of what law is that it's going to take time to unbrainwash ourselves. And every time you see it, from Galatians to Hebrews to wherever else, I hope it's just going to start getting drilled into you that this starts so that when you see it, it's like, oh gosh, now I get it. Rather than what we've been trained up in our culture all these years. So, uh, with that, let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for fulfilling the law for us. Thank you for redeeming us through your blood. And thank you, Jesus, that you have made us righteous saints. Thank you that when we fail in keeping that law, it has already been taken care of. It has been fulfilled. But God, we still love the law because it is your word and it is a reflection of who you are. And we look forward to the day that you will come back and that law will go out from Zion. That the word of the Lord will shine brightly And we will understand it perfectly as it points to you and that we can understand just the depths of who you are. So reveal that to us in every step of obedience that we take as saints when we stand or fall. In Jesus' name, amen.